0: Welcome to Better Than Nothing. I'm Ken Root. This is a podcast that highlights the people, places, and most interesting times of my life. This week, we are Multimedia, as my guest and I produced a television documentary of our trip to the Soviet Union in 1986. Maybe it was a long time ago, but events of the past few years of the Cold War still have relevance. The documentary is a glimpse of how it was at that time. Focusing on Russian agriculture, we show how the country farmed. Focusing on people and government, we show how all people existed under communism. It was also the era of glasnost and perestroika, an era defined as openness and reform. We didn't see a lot of either one. It was endorsed, however, by the last Soviet premier, Mikhail Gorbachev. We were also in Ukraine, a country with immense natural resources and very proud people. They had no idea that they would be free from Russian dominance in just a few years, but back under it in a major war in just three decades. The documentary, Russia, a Kansan's Perspective, is about 25 minutes long and available on my Facebook page or as a YouTube video. If you can't find it, email me and I'll send you a link. Kenroot at gmail.com In 1986, I was active in the National Farm Broadcasters Organization, and I worked for an exceptional television station at the time. We've talked about KWCH a while back with Julie Becker, and another member of that staff is with me. And in this case, Jeffrey Hardiman, who joins me, a photographer and producer uh, of great merit, went with me on a trip to the Soviet Union. We spent about two weeks Traveling across the country, our goal was to look at agriculture, but they showed us a lot more than that. And uh, now, as we're uh, 30-some years later, we're thinking about the Soviet Union and then Free Russia and now Russia under Putin and the countries around them. So it's relevant more than even in the past. Jeff and I wound up producing a documentary that uh, was given some acclaim and it uh, laid out from the perspective of an ag reporter and a producer in kansas what we were seeing and there's a lot of relationship here between kansas and ukraine so the year was 1986 now the year is 2022 and jeff Hardeman, how are you doing i'm doing well kenny thank you you uh we're with the television station, Channel 12, KWCH, and that golden era, we called it the Ramsey era of our news director. What's your take on the years that you spent there when the station went from third to first in the market?
1: Well, it, it was interesting because uh, I loved uh, the previous podcast you did with Julie Becker because you guys really touched on the fact that we, we were you a know, fourth place station in a three station market, which is Absolutely true. And, but the thing that I remember is how hard we worked and um, to get us over the hump and get us past um, KSNW and then set our sights on Cake TV, which was number one in the market. So um, we had great new ownership. We had, you know, solid reporters, photographers, producers, and we just, It was a leap of faith, and we really um, took it to task. Where were you before
0: you came there, and uh, what have you done since?
1: Well, um, graduated University of Kansas in 1980 with a radio-TV film degree, and my very first job um, out of college was at KTVH-TV at the time in Wichita. And I worked in the production department and then worked there a couple of years and then moved into news when they started to ramp up the uh, photographers, uh, staff. So, um, obviously from that point became special projects producer. And that's when one of the great trips I was fortunate to go on was to, the Soviet union with you.
0: Well, you were, uh, a class act without a doubt. You don't seem like you were that young at that time because you had a maturity in how you did things. And uh, we prepped as much as we could for that trip. And I had made a few others, and I was a little older than you. And about the only advice I had was we need to be able to carry everything we have between the two of us and walk away. And so you had to condense down things quite a bit because we were still using some pretty heavy equipment from the 1980s.
1: Yes, sir. That's absolutely true. And when we put the Carnet list together for the visa to go there, it's like what? What are the ex- exact things that we need to take with with no overage? Because one, we didn't know if all of the stuff that we would take would even make it in country. And um, so you're right. I mean, it had to pare down where we had to because you and I were the mules to to uh, show up all the equipment everywhere we went.
0: Yeah, you got that right. But it was um, you know two young guys and a goal. And so off we go without really knowing a lot about it. I had been to Russia, Leningrad, in 1979, but it was on a tour ship, an overnight uh, passage, and we got to go through uh, Petrograd, and then we left. So I really had no concept of this, except that we were getting the chance during Glasnost, under the Gorbachev era, to go in and see... More of the country, we hope, than people had seen before. And we were seeing it through, in my case, the eyes of an, uh, a person who was in agriculture. And as a part of our group of about 22, we had several agriculturalists with us that could give us some reaction. We had a machinery dealer. We had a farmer. We had a seed company guy. And we had another guy from the seed industry from Pioneer plus a number of broadcasters and reporters. So we were looked at as a group that was uh, reporters uh, and interested in the country. Uh, That made us suspicious to the government, I'm sure. And you may remember, Jeff, that uh, we weren't even sure we were going to get to go for a while, partly because of Chernobyl and partly because of the Goodwill Games, of which there wasn't enough Goodwill to go around And uh, as I recall, they canceled our visas. Do you
1: remember that? The work that you guys did with Senator Dole's office to get us even in country was amazing. So once that was set, it was just a matter of getting ready to go. Well, we get to
0: uh, Moscow, and we get off the airplane. And I'm probably bringing back a bad memory for you, but you went one way and we went another.
1: Well... If you want me to tell you exactly what happened, you guys were in the front of the aircraft and I was in the back. And um, if you remember, that flight went from Helsinki to Moscow and then on to Tokyo. So I had a cabin full of Japanese tourists that when the plane landed and you were getting off the aircraft, uh, the Japanese folks where I was seated, seated with, they got up out of their seats and started taking pictures out the window. And it took me a long time to get off the airplane. And the first thing that I see when I finally get to the front door, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a Moscow police officer with an AK-47.
0: Maybe he was coming after you, Jeff. That's what I, I I didn't know what
1: to think. I didn't know what to think. And then once I get into the terminal, you guys were gone. And so here I am in Moscow, you know, 10 minutes into the, the trip. I don't speak a lick of Russian. I can't read Cyrillic, So I had no idea where you guys went. And it mm-hmm. took me probably 20 minutes after walking the full terminal looking for you guys that I finally found somebody that worked for Aeroflot Airlines. And I, the only words I said were passport control and customs. And they nodded and they took me down to you. But what was probably 20, 25 minutes felt like three days. Well, I remember the terror in your
0: eyes as you were coming back in there. And of course, we were all just pushed along. I could say we didn't leave you, but we all went off the plane to where they told us to go. And I'm very glad you got back with us. But that was kind of the way the trip went for much of the time. We were just kind of going through, not knowing for sure what was going to happen next. And of course, you had a video camera. And a video camera is sensitive in a communist country. Get that out of the way first. And so you are trying to shoot video that matched up what they told us we could shoot. And we had a guide named Yuri. I'm sure you remember him. I do. I would, uh, I would describe him as not on our side and perhaps well, a little KGB agent.
1: Well, Kenny, wasn't he KGB? Well, you never know, Jeff. You never know. Well, he sure acted like, and 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 I don't know uh, what his deal was, but he he really snubbed me from the onset, and that's fine. I wasn't expecting to, you know, somebody to do somersaults just because I'm from Kansas and I'm in a foreign country. <laughs> At the same time, I didn't get a lot of direction from him on what I couldn't shoot. So, if you remember, I just turned off my tally lights on on my camera and just rolled rolled videotape and got what I could get. And didn't you say, I I think I'm quoting you accurately, that it was the best documentary shot out of a bus? No, you said that. (laughs) I did not say that. You said that. (laughs)
0: Well, I laughed for a week over it because it was about the only positive thing. I have always said, my photographer, Jeffrey Hardiman, said, this is the best documentary ever shot out the window of a bus.
1: All right. I think it was mutual, so I'll take it.
0: Jeff, when you were on the grounds at Red Square, uh, didn't you get a little enforcement from one of the officers who didn't like where you were standing?
1: Yeah, uh, that's, you know, politely put. Um, it was great that we had the opportunity to shoot in Red Square, uh, the Kremlin and uh, the Kremlin Church and obviously St. Basil's Cathedral, which is absolutely a gorgeous facility that's, that aspires Uh, still bring back great memories for me. So one of the shots that I wanted to get of St. Basil's was a low-angle shot shooting upward towards the spires. And apparently there was a Moscow police officer behind me that was, I think, telling me that I couldn't shoot it. And when I didn't respond to him, he hit me in the back with a nightstick. And if you recall... We left that in the documentary, which I thought was which was wonderful. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it, it showed that they were, you know, there to enforce. And I think, you know, you had the most visible thing of all of us. You had a video camera. Do you have any memory of when uh, one of our group uh, had a sign that he hoisted in Red Square that said, uh, KDTH says hello to the Soviet Union and uh, Dubuque, Iowa written on it. And all of a sudden, they came out of nowhere and knocked down his sign and interrogated our guide of the day about what it said because they couldn't read it. Do
1: you recall that? I do. Um, but I, the thing that I remember about it is we were all called into like makeshift uh, police department, and they were looking. They were trying to get our videotapes because they one, no one told them that we were coming. Obviously. I get slugged in the back. We had the sign torn down, and then we're in, in interrogation almost of what we were doing there. And Yuri did the best he could in explaining what we were doing. And I think once the police found out he was KGB, that's why I refer to him as a KGB agent, they allowed us to leave. But that was that was scary moment number one that we weren't gonna get out with our tape. The thing about
0: the trip was that we were trying to just basically document what they were allowing us to see. We were told we couldn't shoot any video within like 30 kilometers of an airport, uh, unless it was within a city, they gave us a few other things we couldn't shoot. And you and I, I either I heard them or relate them to you, but we were offered the chance to shoot pictures, especially, in the tourist attractions and on the farm, and occasionally with soldiers walking by that seemed to be okay. And what I really wanted most was to see those rural people. So um, dispensing with uh, Moscow at this time, although they kept us there longer than I wanted to be because they took us to the Cosmos Hotel, and that's where we stayed, and then they took us to several other attractions, we went out into the countryside, and we went to Ukraine. As I recall, we were in what we called Kharkov, which is Kharkiv now, in the pronunciation of the Ukrainians. We went within about 60, 80 miles of Chernobyl, but from the upwind side, and we went across that uh, beautiful countryside, quite frankly, but uh, black dirt and, uh, and interesting uh, workward people. What was your reaction to the people we saw?
1: Well, first off, um, when we were in Moscow, before we went to Kharkov, um, just the sheer presence of the military when we were in Red Square, they were everywhere. And it kind of gave me you know, shivers up and down my spine because everything that we saw prior to going was all on network news. So we didn't know a whole lot of what we were going to get into. But then once we got out of Moscow and went to Ukraine, that was more like home. Because we were out in the wheat fields and we were with farmers that um, were just, if you didn't know better, you thought you were at home, even though the equipment was a bit ancient, uh, but but they were doing exactly what our farmers do back in Kansas.
0: Yeah, everything had a matchup. And of course, the early wheat that came to Kansas came from Ukraine. Mennonites brought it over in the uh, 19th century. Was that, and, the, was that the Russian red wheat? Yeah, it's a, it's a hard red winter wheat is what it's called. Ah. And uh, it was really the basis for what would grow on the plains. If you take that Ukraine area and you were to spin the globe to put it on the North American continent, it would start somewhere in the Dakotas and go up into Canada and be east-west for uh, considerable several well. 800,000 miles, I'd say. And that is the black lands that have natural fertility, but they have always been under the Russian Soviet control. I mean, that was the area that produced all the grain during the Stalin period. But Stalin didn't like the Ukrainians because they didn't like him. So in effect, he took all the grain that they produced and gave it to the people that liked him and starved the Ukrainians. So There has been bitterness between the two over their agriculture all of that time. The Chernobyl incident um, opened my eyes somewhat. Uh, First of all, the scariness of it and the the worst nuclear accident ever. But then the incredible efforts of people to be able to stop that uh, radiation leak, which as they tried to stop it, it in effect killed them. And then we saw a documentary on television while we were there that I thought was extremely good. You even videotaped that off of the TV screen
1: I did, and we um, we put it in the documentary because we I think afterwards we were talking about it, and it was amazing that they were by hand you know moving uh, chemicals and sand and and everything else out of. The reactor to get uh, into a safe area. And they, they captured it on video. And six months after Chernobyl and they put this documentary together, I thought was phenomenal. I, I thought, first of all, that that piece actually made air, <laughs> given the severity of the accident. And I don't know how we found out about it, but I love that we were able to uh, capture it and, and put it in our documentary.
0: We had a guy traveling with us by the name of Jerry Holly, who was the general manager of WIBW radio and television in Topeka. And I think he had some contacts with um, the CBS people and he was talking to them. And I think he may have found out about it. Jerry's also the one that had the link to Senator Dole who got us in there. So we had some clout with us in the, on the U S side. We didn't have any clout other than that. The Ukrainian people were um dear to me and i'm i'm not sure why i felt a uh an affinity for them i guess it was because they were people of the land and i recall a large number of older women who had hoes and shovels and worked in the fields and you got some close-ups of their faces while they were mixing fertilizer with wooden shovels and when i traveled around kansas after that showing Pictures. They said, "This looks like my
1: grandmother,"
0: mm-hmm. and
1: they are much the same people. I remember that. I am amazed that everyone in the Ukraine pitched in. It wasn't just the you know the men that typical farmers. The women were heavily involved in in harvest and and um, it was pretty amazing to see because that's not the way it was in the United States. Right now,
0: we also had a chance one time, and I'm not sure how much of this you got to shoot, that they sat down with us with Russian people, supposedly average people, um, but you could tell they were uh, an intellectual class and they were, to me, members of the Communist Party. And they visited back and forth with us, told us some things about their country, about their lives, and we told them some about ours. But I recall this lady sat across from me And as we were finishing up, she looked at me and through the interpreter, she said, please don't bomb us. And I responded, please don't bomb us. And my eyes opened a little bit right then of the fact that both of our governments in this cold war had kept us all afraid of each other. And I think I stated in the documentary that 90% of the people in the countries we saw were not members of the Communist Party. They were simply people who wanted to run their own lives. They didn't care anything past
1: their own lives, but they were caught up in this just like we were. I I do remember that meeting. I didn't get to shoot a lot of it, and and I I can't remember the reason why, but uh, obviously we would have used uh, some of that, especially through the interpreter, what what they were really about, because um, the whole bombing scenario that uh, was kind of amazing. And then if you remember in Kharkov, we actually went to a circus. There was a young boy that had a sign that he made because he found out we were an American that was in acrylic, but translated, it said peace in 86, and he gave it to our group. And I just thought that was an amazing moment because uh, here this young boy is, you know, thinking the same thing that the, the women that you were speaking to, About not bombing us. And it was, you know, you're right. 90% of the people are not communists at that time. And so their fear was the United States. And our fear was the Soviet Union. So it's kind of amazing that uh, a young boy was able to uh, kind of bring it all together. We went through some markets and got to see
0: some people. I shot some pictures of those. And the people in the markets uh, looked at us curiously uh, and, uh, Yet they didn't have a big problem with us they They seemed like they were just tired. You know they were having to do what they did at their jobs every day and then if they were going to make any money on the side, they could sell it in these little markets that they had made in the parallel market system and when we were there, the ruble was still very um uh, much the center of their transactions and in U.S. dollars, I think it was worth about a dollar and sixty-seven cents back in 1986. So it was expensive for tourists to be able to do things. Yet at the same time, it looked like the people that we saw lived at a
1: very minimal standard of living. Right, right. Um, and if you recall, um, remember there was uh, one of the main streets in, in Moscow, and actually in Kharkov too, they had these portable what we would call a drinking fountain, but it was an actual water fountain that you would reuse a a plastic cup. You'd fill it with water, you'd drink it, and then you'd leave the cup for the next person to come and and, uh, drink out of it, which you and I thought that was about the craziest thing we ever saw. Yeah. Well, the
0: worst one I remember that I got a lot of mileage out of was their toilet paper. Their toilet paper was uh, very similar to the tree that it came off of.
1: And that's exactly what you said in the documentary, which I thought was brilliant (laughs) pieces of
0: wood in it. You weren't sure whether that was you or the wood. And (laughs) it was, uh, it was so rough. I, you know, there's the old joke about the John Wayne toilet paper, but it was rough and tough. And uh, that's what they had. And I brought a roll of it home with me. And as I gave speeches, I would take one square of it and pass it to each side of the crowd And I ran out of the stuff, but, uh, their creature comforts in 86 were still so minimal that I came out of there with the belief a third world country with a first world military is who they are uh, at the time.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, they work their tails off and they don't have a lot to show for it. And, um, you kind of felt for them and you're right the military presence was all especially in moscow was all over the place and uh, when we first went to red square and we saw the military it, like i said it gave me shivers i just you know they they look i don't know as as mean as possible uh, because again the only video that we ever saw was off of network news so we couldn't really make a judgment without being there and it i i still think about how scared I was. And the thing is, when you're shooting videotape through a camera, it's the viewfinder's in black and white. So I always told myself that if I keep my left eye closed and I shoot through the viewfinder, it's not necessarily real. It's in black and white. Mm-hmm. So then when I open my left eye, everything's in color and it kind of brings me back down to earth. But I always I always felt like that that was the best way to to shoot kind of scary situations. We were finishing up the trip in the city
0: of Leningrad, which was the old St. Petersburg. Peter the Great established it, but in the communist era, they converted it over. And throughout the country, we saw a lot of statues. You shot a lot of pictures of statues, primarily of linen. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was um, the opening you had for
1: the documentary. And uh, that was, it was very profound. It was profound because of your words. This is the playground of a czar. I, I still get chills when, when I hear that. Well, you know, you, you don't get out much, Jeff. <laughs> not, a, not as much as, as you, apparently.
0: Well, I enjoyed the camaraderie you had because, you know, we had each other's back. Yep. And we had a group around us that all was very tight because we were all feeling just what you've described of let's get what we can, but let's get on through this. For me, out in the countryside, the people who had been out there before were journalists that were from the urban areas, and they really didn't understand nor see the point of going out in the countryside. We went into the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, and as I remember, the ag attaché there said, what have you seen? And he had a notepad. And I thought, well, what have, do you know? And he said, they don't let us go anywhere. So, so in other
1: words, we got to see a lot more than yeah. U.S. officials that were stationed in
0: Moscow. Yeah. And the glass nose period was opening this up. And Gorbachev was becoming more of a world star because Gor- Gorbachev was showing that he was not as hard line as his predecessors. So, as we kept on moving, we come to St. Petersburg, Leningrad, and you and I, of course, have a job, and that is we have got to produce a documentary on this when we get home, and we figured out that that would be the place to do it. Um, I had my sport coat. We were standing in this magnificent area that had been created generations earlier, and... uh We agreed what we would do, and so I did an opening stand-up, and then you shot a lot of things of that place. And I think I said something to the effect of, this was the playground of a czar. Most people didn't live like this, and this has been now renamed from its first hero to its second. And that got us into talking about Lenin. And then we went on through showing Moscow and showing the countryside, and being able to narrate this whole story and bring it all together. So, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for your uh, photographic sense and producer capabilities to get us to where we could bring
1: home some video that would cut. Well, uh, thank you for saying so, Uh, but the second scary moment was whether we were even going to get out of the country with our videotapes. Well, here's what I remember of it
0: you and I were prepared to leave the country. We had already talked about this. I kept saying, you know, we haven't shot anything that they have told us we can't. And so they took all of our stuff as we went through, uh, to exit because they have your passport, by the way. Yeah. Well, so you have a Russian equivalent, but you can't go anywhere until you get your own passport back. We gave them everything and they then slid back to you the videotapes that were still in plastic, you had about maybe three or four that had not been shot as of yet. But everything else was in a cardboard box,
1: and they said, we're keeping this. Right. That's a scary moment. We spent two weeks there shooting, producing what we thought was going to be a uh, a pretty good, pretty good piece. And when they said, we want your videotapes, not the unused, but the the used video, I'm not sure how we were able to go, but we got our passports back, we got our tapes back, and we we finally left.
0: My uh, memory of this part is really very sharp because I said, uh, well, let's look at this video. No. I said, we haven't shot anything that we weren't supposed to shoot. Anything you have as a question, please, let's look at it. And we could see it, you know, through the viewfinder of your camera. Yeah. Uh, by running it back to them. Yeah. Again, it was no. And we were about, I want to say we were about 45 minutes to an hour before departure at that time. And all of you moved away to the seating area. And I stayed there and I don't know, I began to sweat. I know that a little bit, uh, but I kept standing my ground and they, uh, Yuri came over and I said, Yuri, you know, can you tell them that, we did what you told us the whole time. Well, it's up to them what they choose uh, to allow you to have. And I said, well, let's look at it. So we kept going back and forth, and they just said no. And there was one man in particular who was in charge. And so I stood there, and finally I said, I am not leaving without this videotape. And Yuri said, fine, you will spend another day in our beautiful country. And he walked off. And everything else was through the security. We did have our passports back. I had my passport in hand at that point. I think they gave them to us as a group. And then this guy looked at me, and he just shoved the box across the table and said, get out. That was it. I took the box, and I ran for the airplane, And I recall you guys applauded when I got on the airplane because I was the last one of
1: us to get on the plane. Yes,
0: sir. And that,
1: uh, I never, I was never so happy to see Ken Root in all my life. (laughs) We got home. But there was one thing I want to ask you before
0: we left there. The day that we pretty much ended the trip, we were all sitting around talking and you said something I thought was profound. You were young. You uh, were, did not have children as of yet. And you said, you know, from what I have seen here, I don't think I want to bring children into this world. Do you recall saying that?
1: I do. Uh, and somehow I knew you were going to bring that up. It, it, I guess coming from me, that was uh, <laughs> quite a statement. But I was unmarried at the time, no children. Obviously, the tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union were were high. So the thought of actually bringing children into the world with all of that hanging over our heads, it wouldn't be fair to them. It's not fair to us, obviously, too, but especially the children who would be sacrificed because of nuclear war, all because of politics. I just could not get my head around that.
0: And the last shot we had was of the very, very bright sun going down, and we kind of made that into a nuclear explosion-looking uh, reference.
1: And you know, it didn't have to do much to it uh, to make it look like that. The sun was, was bright red as it set, and uh, it was kind of an apropos ending, to be honest. We got home, and, of course, we had to go back to
0: our lives. We produced a documentary. And uh, Jeff is extremely talented in this area. I didn't know whether you do this all your life, but you certainly had the capabilities. And I'd write some things, and you'd look at me, and you'd go edit. And then we'd go back and forth, and I'd write some more, and you'd edit. And uh, how long did it take you to bring that
1: documentary to the point that you were feeling like it was done? Well, honestly, my favorite thing to do was, was editing. Because I was a, a pretty good photographer, not great by, you know, Larry Hatterberg standards, but I love to get in the edit booth and especially with a documentary. So I have some time to work on it and think through how that thing is going to play out. You try and shoot in the camera like you're editing. So sequencing that it's very easy to find your video, uh, the pieces that you want to put in. And I just, I just, I just love Uh, the opportunity to sit down and really make something of it. it, it, But it did take some time to pull it together. I think we were kind of under pressure to get something on the air to kind of, uh, I mean, you you talked about Steve Ramsey. That was his thing is that, all right, you're back. Get something on the air now. And so we kind of hustled through it. But I think we had a pretty good product, so much so that we actually won the New York Film Festival for a medium-sized market documentary. So I think, you know, not just people in Wichita liked it. We got some national attention over it.
0: I recall that uh, it ran on a Sunday night at 10.30, the first time it
1: ran. Right after the 10 o'clock news.
0: And that gave us a good lead, and they were promoting it ahead of time. Then I started traveling across Kansas and speaking. And uh, I stayed in Kansas from that September through May. And I think I gave 65 speeches after that uh, showing slides, but it all started because of that documentary. Your post-production work, uh, along with other people at the station, and this esprit de corps that we had that was so good, everybody was cheering for us. So the documentary was something I'll never forget doing, but it was all because of the trip that we took and the good fortune we had to get out of the country with that videotape made a bond for life between me and you. And uh, I sure appreciate, Jeff, for you telling us about this. Uh, if we can ever find a copy of this tape, maybe we can uh, uh, make it available for people to see. Uh, it wouldn't be that hard to do with YouTube today. Uh, but through the years with video, there's a bad issue of people tending
1: to uh, lose it or have it on a format that they can't retrieve. I was just going to say, <clears throat> the only format I have it on it's three-quarter-inch tape, and I'm fresh out of three-quarter-inch machines.
0: I uh, I know the feeling, but if you've got it on three-quarter, I might be able to
1: find somebody that can put it together. Well, I would love—you know, honestly, I have not seen it in so many years, but my recollection is, is pretty vivid when it comes to what we shot, what we put together. It's just something I will never forget, ever.
0: Jeff, what have you done— In the years, you left television and did production work, I think, for a private industry. What did you do?
1: Well, when I left uh, KWCH, I was the executive producer of the NBC affiliate in Kansas City. That's where I still am today. Um, So I was there for a couple of years, and then I got out of the business completely. And um, I went to work for Sprint Corporation. So uh, TV news guy, and I go work for a corporation it's what happened. And I went to work in their corporate events group. And we would produce customer events based off of Sprint sponsorships like the NFL, US Ski Team, the NCAA, things like that. So I did that for roughly ten years and then I broke away and started my own company. And that's I'm continuing to do the same kind of work even now. Post COVID, it's finally picking up a little bit, but it was pretty bleak there for a, a couple of years.
0: Well, you're still young enough to uh, need to work, and you can't live on Social Security yet, so uh, I wish you well in that regard. But your talent is exceptional, and I'm sure you uh, utilize that for more than just this documentary that you utilize that through these years and continue to do that to this day. So a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for being on this podcast. Uh, This is a new method of communication uh, using old means. The Ukraine and the people of Russia I, I have an, an affection for them and a fear for them both at yep. this time in history.
1: I agree 100%. It's just kind of amazing to see where we were um, near Kharkov and out in the fields in the Ukraine. And today there's tanks rolling through there. So it's very surreal. There's your final image right there. Jeff Hardiman,
0: thank you very much. Ken Root, always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send an email to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.